Welcome to Post Doom, Regenerative Conversations Exploring Overshoot Grief, Grounding, and Gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, your host. And in this conversation, recorded in July of 2020, thoroughly into a coronavirus era, I speak with Vanessa Blakesley. Vanessa is an award-winning author of short stories, book reviews, poems, essays, uh, perhaps best known for uh, her train shots and then most recently, Perfect Conditions. I encountered her when I read this incredible essay called Our Permian Paradox, and I immediately said, I gotta have this woman as part of this post tube series. She gets the big picture, including the super scary stuff, and has a, a really heartful and a generous way of holding it all. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, Vanessa, what a delight to see you face to face. I've, I've read some of your stuff, really enjoyed it. And um, you're held in rather high esteem in the collapse community. Uh, and I wanted to invite you at the start here to just help us get you help uh, anybody who's not familiar with your work, they haven't read you, they're not familiar with, you know, what you're passionate about or known for. Uh, just give us a little bio at the start of, of uh, what you're either very interested in or passionate about or well known for. Oh, uh, certainly. Thank you, uh, Michael. And it's so great to, to meet you um, at last. This is really a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, so my name is Vanessa Blakesley. I'm the author of three books of fiction, the uh, two short story collections, Train Shots, and Perfect Conditions, which came out in, that's my most recent title, it came out in 2018. And I'm also the author of Hooventude, which is a novel which came out in 2015. So I've been very, very busy over the last 10, 15 years with a writing career. I also publish uh, quite a few essays as well, which is how, uh, what brought us together to talk today initially, Michael. And um, the, I have a recent essay out called The Permian Paradox, which was published by The Smart Set, which is an excellent literary uh, journal out of Drexel University. Um, so that's, well, you know, I, I found that I found that particular essay so um, uh, uh, compelling, so interesting. So uh, obviously, uh, in fact, that's what led me to reach out to you. Uh, say a little bit about that, the Permian Paradox. That essay was, uh, it, it's based on a, it's, it's sort of partly an immersion journalism essay and a travelogue um, that that I wrote uh, probably about six months ago. It would have been published sooner had it not been hijacked by the COVID-19 pandemic because I, I started sending that out, you know, probably in January, February, and I was anticipating that it would have been published about March. And then, you know, in terms of, in terms of freelancing, everything just became uh, all pandemic news all the time. And so it took me a while to find a really good home. Um, for that, and of course, travel stops. So all kinds of travel essays that was no longer sort of in vogue to be talking about about travel. And then, of course, uh, you know the oil the oil price crash came, and oil went crazy, and now fr fracking companies are you know going bankrupt. Yeah. Um, so then I thought I just thought, oh no, like I, I hope this will still the the context of this essay <laughs> will make sense because. <laughs> So much is changing so rapidly. I really wanted to get it out there, and so it was finally published uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I read I read quite a few essays. Um, I teach uh, occasionally as well for a small liberal arts college. I'll be I wasn't teaching this spring. I'll be teaching it again in the fall. Um, where so where I, is that? 
That's at Rollins College, which is in Winter Park, Florida. So, and I'm in Florida. Um, so, and I've been involved in, in this, uh, I don't know if you could say, um, community, I guess, uh, for a few years. I co-hosted for a little while the Extinction Radio uh, series with Mike Farrigan, um, which is, I'm not sure if we'll be resuming that, but um, did that for a while. And um, now, and then I, I pulled back a bit because I had some personal, we, we've just moved, uh, made a big move in our life um, mm -hmm. with my partner and I, and I'm uh, just kind of getting back into some writing projects. Hopefully, although my, the novel I was working on, it's, uh, things, have, things have really changed with the pandemic, so I'm not quite sure <laughs> how that will impose itself on the manuscript. Right. Yeah. What? Okay. Say a little bit about the themes that you write on. What are you? What are you? What? What? Uh, what fuels or inspires or undergirds uh, much of your writing? Um, I would say it would be the uh, how individuals uh, in different parts of the world. Um, I often write about about uh, Americans abroad or people abroad um, are end up grappling with um, economic crisis, uh, ecological crisis um, in, in their own particular lives. So that's, that's sort of what drives me when I write fiction. So my short story collection, Perfect Conditions, has a whole range of stories um, along those lines. Um, some, are, some are a little more darkly humorous, some are, are more stark and dystopian as, as we've been just talking about previously. Um, I even have one that's a little bit more kind of speculative paranormal because I really, I love that. I, I also um, really like to not forget the um, mysteriousness of our mm -hmm. universe and our existence. I think mm -hmm. that's really a big part of what keeps me hanging in there um, with life and, and makes it meaningful yeah. is that mystery yeah. and sense of awe. I have to keep returning to that. So I, so I uh, always try to imbue that in my work somehow. Um, but, and for a long time, I was really, really driven by um, social inequality, uh, the large gap that was happening between the haves and the have nots. Mm -hmm. So my first novel, um, my novel Hooventude uh, is set in Colombia, and that had led me to a lot of research which really initially sent me down the proverbial rabbit hole if you will um where i was you know prior to that knew i'd seen a few documentaries um you know i knew i was uh, kind of i wasn't completely in the dark about how the u.s empire or corporate empire worked but the research i ended up doing for that book on paramilitaries on how corporate how corporations work in developing countries, um, mm -hmm. how that interfaces with the politics of, of those countries. It really, um, it was really chilling. It was, it was, uh, that was the beginning of my journey. And <laughs> my, my yeah. eyes really being open to how things really work versus the, you know, the news version of, of yes. narrative that we get. Yes. And so that was quite a lot to digest. And then when I, that book came out in 2015. Um, and so I, after that, I kind of came up for air <laughs> creatively and start, mm -hmm. you know, you ask yourself, well, what am I going to explore now? And I'd been in that world for so long that I started to look around and say, hmm, you know, the environment looks like 
it looks like things are pretty bad. Like things are, things are worse than I realized. And I, so then I started to, to do more research there and yeah. started me on my journey of <laughs> oh, here we are today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want, I want you to say more about that, but I'd like to first lean into, um, you know, well, first of all, let me ask the language that we've been using for this series is post doom conversations, exploring overshoot grief, grounding and gratitude. And I've had a whole wide range of uh, contributors uh, conversants. And I-, I wanted to ask you first, just about the language, like, what do you think of when you think of post doom? Uh, and then what language do you find yourself using in these uh, interesting, contracting, collapsing times? Uh, well, you know, you just use the word contract. And I think that's perhaps an even more apt word than sometimes, you know, collapse uh, is that it's, it's, for me, post doom is a term that really means, um, you know, indicates that things will be um, chaotic, that they will be unraveling. um, And in a way that we have not really experienced in our first world lives. Um, I certainly don't want to speak for people who are in other countries and who are in other circumstances. Um, But, but uh, that it's really shocking and disorienting. And uh, I think, but yet, yet we're still here and yet we're putting one foot in front of the other and continuing to live our lives. But we're really, I mean, I find myself uh, reeling, you know, having, having studied these issues, I don't think for me doesn't remove any of the difficulty or it hasn't yet. Uh, I thought it would perhaps do that more and it it doesn't (laughs) for actually the, the real experience of, of, um, navigating with friends and family, neighbors, colleagues, um, the reality of what, what contraction and destabilization, um, dis- what that means. So for, for me, that's um, the actual sort of concrete aspect of post but also the, um, the psychological spiritual state of, of asking yourself, yeah. well, where does this leave me? How do I how do I reorient myself <laughs> um, yeah. and my life uh, and, and perhaps ways I thought it was going to go that it's not. And, mm-hmm. um, and also uh, giving yourself permission to really, um, uh, you know, denial is part of the stages of, stage of all of this. And, you know, I even found myself in the last weeks and months with the pandemic, like flipping back into some denial about it. And, and I've really changed sort of my, some of my attitude on that of being really harsh on people and their denial. And I'm, it's like, oh my goodness, you know what? Um, it's really a, a big part of our survival mechanism to be able to just Absolutely. keep going. And I've ended up really uh, changing my, some of my I think what my perspectives were on that or how I was becoming a bit too judgmental. Um, in, I completely uh, in, agree. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, Connie wrote something about it. And, and then uh, Damaris Zayner, who writes a blog called Integrity of Life, um, picked up on a theme that Connie was working with. You know, ad- you could call it adaptive inattention. 
Mm. That is, you're not in denial of climate change. You're not in denial of contraction uh, and, you know, uh, the collapse of the American empire or the contraction and collapse of industrial society or whatever. You're not in denial of it. It's just that you got to live on a day by day basis. Yeah. And, you know, if you're a parent or whatever, whatever your life situation is, you've got to basically wake up each day um, inspired to do whatever you can do at whatever level you can, but to have a pretty good life and to not stay in despair and yeah, adaptive inattention or other words like that, functional denial. Mm -hmm. um, I love functional denial. That's, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. I, Stephen, Stephen Jenkinson, uh, sort of a grief worker guy, grief, mm -hmm. uh, grief walker was a, a, a thing done. And he, one of my favorite conversations that we had in this series was Barbara Cecil and I uh, co-hosted with Stephen Jenkinson. And uh, in an interview that he had somewhere else, he said that, inattention like not paying attention to the world's ecological state is well advised because attention to it mitigates against your happiness your contentment and your sense of well-being right whatever awakening whatever spiritual awakening has meant in the past awakening in our time is to awaken with a sob mm. i think that's that's really profound so i yeah i've i even when i speak to church audiences or secular groups via zoom now um, I say, hey, don't be dis in denial, you know, <laughs> uh, let people and let yourself have some form of adaptive inattention and be okay with that. Yeah, you really have to. I, I've learned that, you know, you, you really um, have to allow for that to be a stage. And as we have, uh, many of us have experienced that those stages are not linear. They are, you know, you exactly. go through them and you go, you know, again and again. Um, you know, sometimes it's the anger stage that flares up, then sometimes that dissipates and, you know, seemingly, and it, and it just, um, it cycles through in that way. And uh, I, you know, yeah, you have to um, allow it to have that place just so, so that you can um, experience, still experience moments of happiness and, um, joy joy with you know uh, much as you would you know be, being with kids or your pets or exactly. you know you have to you have to studying all of that has I'm really grateful I mean for me it was the correct path um, yeah. finding out more about it understanding about it um, because it just enables me to understand that there you know this this is what happens. It's okay, actually. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. it's it's part of you know things have their own cycles, even empires and civilizations. And this would wouldn't be really something you're you know I think you'd be taught in school. <laughs> it's no, exactly. it's uh, and uh, you know and, and just as everything in the universe does, doesn't it? A star has its cycle. Um, the dinosaurs had their time. You know, species have their <laughs> cycle. And um, so, in it allowing you know to have that perspective, um, I found really helpful. And another another trick that I have employed throughout my life is pulling back and you know trying to be look at our species from a more detached vantage point as if yeah. I was an alien in the spaceship <laughs> and yeah. and just seeing what's happening and at what point we are and that has helped with my understanding and acceptance of of yeah. uh mm -hmm. yeah no exactly well I actually want to invite you to go a little more deeply 
in that direction. Uh, the heart of this series has been to really invite my guests to share their story and take along as long as you want. How did you come to what I'm calling a post-doom mind, a post-doom heart, and post-doom living? Like, how were you raised? <laughs> what was your worldview like? Um, what were the, any significant mileposts or transformations that happened, especially any difficult times um, uh, that, that ultimately uh, you know, got you to where you are now? I was raised in rural Pennsylvania from a you know, very middle class, kind of working class, middle class family background. Um, and you know, it was brought up with, with uh, fairly conservative politics. Um, but you know, I, I was one of those young people who from a very young age sensed that um, the species I was a part of was uh, uh, I did not think we were headed for a Star Trek kind of <laughs> future. Um, you know, from, from about the time I was five years old, I, you know, whatever I, what I saw on the television, when my parents explained what nuclear weapons were, I was just, uh, you know, like, oh, this is not gonna, this is not gonna turn out well. I didn't necessarily foresee that that would perhaps be in my lifetime, but I did not, you know. Um, but nevertheless, I loved books. I wanted to be a writer. I knew I wanted to travel widely. That was very important to me. Um, and so I did that. So I went away to, to college and um, took every travel opportunity available to um, go to, you know, New Zealand, Australia, Europe, numerous times. And that really helped me um, connect with the natural world. Because even though I'd been raised in a rural environment, we were not a family who went camping or anything like that. So, um, so I really developed a love for the wilderness there, um, hiking, um, all kinds of, you know, exploring the outdoors. Um, and, but I stayed in Florida. Um, and uh, went to grad school um, and, you know, started writing. Um, and I, at different points in my life, I have, um, I have become religious. I was very uh, Christian, actually went to Catholic church in my mid-20s. I got very, very into Catholicism, but from a more sort of um, mystical kind of viewpoint of it, I was always drawn to that aspect of religion. Um, and uh, uh, even, you know, I very much would be cut out to be uh, a nun. <laughs> and I was actually looking into that very earnestly at one point, deciding whether, well, um, should I live, uh, you know, I'd, I could see myself living a cloistered life as a nun somewhere, um, a life of service. And, um, but then I, I sort of did that, you know, I, I made the decision to, well, I could be a, of service as an, as an artist as well, as a storyteller. And then it turns out there are many writers colonies and I go to, I've gone to many of those places where you essentially are <laughs> cloistered um, for periods of time. Oh, and I, I, you know, I love that. And, and also at those places, which have also um, frequently been in uh, wilderness locations, that was where I would really find um, that I was uh, energized by um, that kind of alone time, that kind of solitude and creativity, um, which I absolutely love as much as I love being with in my with my uh, you know partner and in a great relationship um, with a fellow artist. Um, so 
all of that uh, has really been the bedrock of my adult life um, and is where I, you know, do my best to come back to. And that's why going back to that essay, the Permian Paradox essay, which um, I tried to capture some of that. Uh, that was my vision for that essay, that it would capture this, uh, you know, what I've I've come to see as the, uh, I mean, the ultimate paradox of our lives. We're living, I mean, I as a woman, I'm living um, a remarkable life, remarkable for, um, I mean, you know, a fraction of 1% of probably women who uh, on this planet who don't have to haul water uh, or fear of being, you know, raped in a refugee camp or something to, you know, to have the level of liberty and, and the opportunities I've had. Um, but that has come as a result of um, the complex civilization, industrial civilization that we have built. So, uh, you know, the crux of that essay was this amazing drive throughout the Southwest, which was a part of the planet I'd never seen, and going to Arches National Park and Canyonlands and all of these places and enjoying all of that splendor as I have done my whole life. And, um, you know, grappling with the weird, the, the, uh, the absolute truth that um, you know the very the very thing that has enabled my life to be that uh, so amazing um, and this time is also uh, leading to our undoing. It's really it's really a remarkable thing. <laughs> it's a remarkable paradox to grapple with. So um, and I'd like to explore more of that in my fiction going forward. But um, I hope that. Um, answers some of your. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, that's that's great. No, I'm glad you shared yeah. all that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, my background, just real briefly. I was raised Roman Catholic, and uh, then I got involved in my later teenage years in Pentecostal Charismatic Christianity, and then my first wife and I got really into neo paganism and earth earth honoring forms of of. Uh, uh, and then uh, I spent a week with Thich Nhat Hanh and did Buddhist meditation. I've also done a 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat. And so I, I feel fortunate, I feel blessed, privileged, that I can mm -hmm. be in almost any religious uh, or secular setting. And I don't have a piece of my brain critiquing and judging and assessing it. It's like I feel like I'm... Uh, I'm capable of operating with different operating systems, different software, you know, operating systems, and I can be in different philosophical and religious contexts and do the interpretation uh, in a way that's just deeply meaningful for me. And uh, I'm grateful for that. And I've never lost that sense, having been raised Catholic, of the sort of the, the smells and the bells and the ritual and sort of the appreciation of the mystical side of things. Yeah, yeah, I love all that. And, um, and, and that's why I don't, you know, um, I really, I, I love what you just said because um, I very much get that um, because uh, even though I left formally going to church and all of that, I still do, I enjoy ritual. I think all of that is incredibly meaningful. I'm not one to like really quickly, um, you know, come down on religion. I think religion can offer people quite a bit at certain stages. At a certain stage, it was really important for me. And, um, and it's, that's very personal. And, um, but like, as of right now, I don't feel a calling to go back to that. Yeah, sure. But, you know, it's, it's um, but I feel like the more you can kind of walk there, um, you can kind of seamlessly um, uh, tra transition in and out of, um, different 
belief systems, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm as an eco theologian, as someone who, you know, the earth, uh, life, the universe is my religion. Uh, nature is my religion. Um, evolution and ecology are my two sacred disciplines, you could say, that allows me to interpret the various religious belief systems in a non-literalistic way, which, which really facilitates things, which really helps. Well, Vanessa, I want to come uh, to uh, some of the things that, uh, anything else that you would like to say that has been supportive or helpful or inspiring or that uh, tools or practices or books that you've read or people that you've met, like what have been some of the things that have been of support to you uh, in this process? Well, um, that's, uh, I, you know, gosh, I would say um, what I come back to uh, is, um, having to cultivate, remind oneself to have gratitude. Um, that is something that actually I've let slip away in the last few months. And I've, I've sort of been overwhelmed with a lot of anxiety about um, now that the uh, contraction is actually accelerating. I mean, it's not, it's not as theoretical feeling as it, as it, at least it felt to us. I think some of us in the first world, our lives hadn't really changed very much. And now they are, and things are changing really quickly. Um, I found myself really kind of taken aback by that. And um, remembering that when I first went through the sort of um, sucker punch of taking all of this <laughs> in, that what really pulled me through, and I've, I've called it before a dark night of the soul, when you, when you really realize what our species is facing along with all the, the other species yes, exactly. on the planet um, that uh, it finding a place of gratitude for what I'd already had what I still had in my life right now um, really uh, was my salvation and helped me shift toward toward more of an of um, of a place of um, how can I help people? How can I be more of service? It kind of mm -hmm. served to redirect my ego and from that place of like, oh, well, um, you know, I'm so disappointed because my scholarship to, my writing scholarship to Alaska was canceled this spring. <laughs> you know, all these, all these things, wait a minute, I thought I had a little bit more time for my career or, you know, and, and as someone who is, you know, in mid-adult life, those, those things are real. I don't want to dismiss them as not being, you know, you do have to take in, acknowledge the disappointments as they come, but um, you do have to move into a place where um, you're not paralyzed by this. And knowing that, knowing factually that this acceleration is going to um, continue, it is not going to back <laughs> it is so how you know how are you going to move through that um how am i going to move through it and um so bringing myself back to uh to what am i grateful for i feel like that sounds really trite <laughs> that's been, well, it actually doesn't because i think that's really the key i mean for me coming back to finding ways to come back to gratitude and trust 
Yeah. Uh, gratitude for everything in the past and up till now, not everything, obviously, but, but I can, you know, even those stupidities and, you know, whatever in the past, I can find usually something to be grateful for. And then in the present moment, my God, there's so much I can be grateful for. And then when I look at the future, finding ways to bring me to that heart space of trust, including trusting that we could go extinct in the not too distant future. That's a very real possibility. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't consider it trite at all. Anything that can help an individual or groups of people to come back to consistently like a compass or whatever, true north of uh, gratitude and trust, to my mind, is a pretty useful thing. I hadn't thought about trust. That's a the, that's an interesting one that you bring up. I and I'm I'm glad you did. And I, because I think these things, when they're not just words, and you're actually experiencing that state of gratitude, trust, they can they can lead to other. They open you up in another direction. So, um, you know, I think uh, I find myself also occasionally, and I would like to practice this more. You know when you feel yourself being judgmental toward people and, um, you know, asking yourself like, or finding ways where you can be more compassionate. I mean, and we can use the COVID pandemic as, as an example. Um, you know, I mm -hmm. see all kinds of over the, you know, social media airwaves of people just blasting, coming down on, you know, uh, people for having a barbecue and these stories of like, oh, then family members were, even though they were outside and they were trying to stay away from each other, like so many people got sick and, you know, oh, COVID idiots, and these hard, you know, these, the ways that, uh, you know, people are talking. Um, and I found myself responding as, you know, um, why why are we shaming and judging people for um they're really doing what what makes life worth living which is hanging out with family and in any other time that is a completely healthy and well it's not always healthy depending on how how dysfunctional your family is <laughs> but but, um, but but that is a completely uh, normal human behavior. And in many cases, I know in the case of my family, as I said, many of my relatives, my, I have relatives all across the political spectrum, um, but a good number of them are conservative. They were on board from the beginning with, they did stay isolated households. They took mm -hmm. things quite seriously, but you know, it's months and months later. It's months later. How do we expect people to not see family, to not practically help with what we rely on families for, which is elder care, child care, um, right. being there to exchange stories and support each other. And, you know, here we are six months into it. Um, many people uh, did take things seriously from the beginning. Some people didn't. Um, perhaps mm -hmm. too many people didn't, but many people did. And so to now be lambasting them for wanting to get together and have a picnic, which is, an, and, and to actually tr think, you know, many people trying to do those things proper, you know, with staying outside to, and then still getting sick and then to call them um, COVID idiots. I, I think I don't want to, for myself, I don't want to become that person. Exactly, exactly. Well, Anna, my wife created a thing called her COVID Legacy Pledge, 
where at the age of 68, she said, I don't see death as an enemy. I don't see it as a problem. I'm not afraid of it. Uh, and I don't, wanna, I don't want to be part of the shutting down uh, of the economy and, and ruining the lives of young people um, in order to just protect those in my age bracket and older. And so she said, so I've, here's my pledge that uh, if I get COVID, I want to ride it out at home. If I survive, great. If I don't, so be it. But I don't want to, you know, clog up the IC units and the, and the you know, things. And she's inviting others, boomers and beyond. She calls it her COVID legacy pledge, boomers and beyond, that if they are so led, nobody's forcing anybody. This isn't making anybody do anything, but people who want to say that and then voice that there's, that there's, a, there's a lot of people in their late 60s, 70s, and 80s who aren't all about keep me alive at whatever the cost to the next generation, no matter what. That's not where they're at. They've lived a full life and they want to live honorably and, and if need be, die honorably, but not completely collapse everything in order to keep alive the most vulnerable. Yeah, I read her pledge. I thought that I really uh, found that a remarkably necessary um, and honest, refreshingly honest document that, you know, I don't know that I would be quite there yet at my age, although oh, at your sometimes, age, 40. Oh, yeah. sometimes I think it, but I can see, you know, I think we desperately need a, um, a conversation uh, or to, to broach more of that conversation about quality of life. And we absolutely live in a death phobic culture because we don't see it anymore. I've never been around, uh, unless you work in the, in the medical fields or the, that kind of, most of us don't see death anymore. Exactly. Um, I have not been in a room where someone has died. Um, just the other day, this is a funny little anecdote. We went to take our um, compost. We're now in a, in a, living in an interesting place that was, uh, an intentional community, founded as an intentional community back in 1946 in Florida, Melbourne Village. It's a historical uh, place, but it really just became a sort of suburban community. But there is a community garden <laughs> and we have our compost bucket and we took it to dump on the community compost pile the other day. And I flipped back the, you know, tarp or whatever to dump it on the pile. And um, I was, wow, I mean, it, it was just like this this sort of sludge of decomposing, you know, of banana peels with big giant cockroaches about this long skittering. It was all just kind of writhing this, this, um, it was all in, in, uh, it was almost like a cartoon of, of um, decomposition, active decomposition. And it kind of gave me a little, I, I was kind of grossed out, but it kind of gave me a kind of delightful affirmation and a jolt because that's how infrequently I see death in our, for real, in our, and it, and it gave me this feeling of like, oh, wow, look at that. There's this whole underbelly to the cycle of life that allows life to continue that, that flip side of it Thanks. that we're so afraid of, um, that allow, that allows things to continue. And, um, that's just, I don't know. I know that's probably the silliest little anecdote, but it's just what came to mind. I mean, no, I, I call it compost <laughs> theology because, because again, I'm an eco theologian. So for me, like, ecology no. is the heart of theology. <laughs> And uh, the heart of ecology is the decomposition process, the regeneration process. I mean, that, that's one of the ways that I actually defined doom and post-doom is, mm -hmm. you know, uh, this idea that uh, doom I see as the midpoint 
between denial and regeneration with or without us that life will regenerate with or without us and most people keep themselves from feeling doom the emotional feeling of doom because they're afraid it's going to be the end point but when you realize it's but the midpoint and then there's this whole realm on the other side of the post-doom doorway what paul traferka calls finding the gift uh what some have even called it you know sort of the the, the importance another stage in the stages of grief is gallows humor and i think that's an important stage actually <laughs> it's a very important stage and another funny um anecdote was just last night we were, you know, watching, you know, finding something to, to stream and we stumbled upon the, the, the Adams family and we watched the first couple episodes ever of the Adams. I haven't seen that in, you know, since I was like a little kid and watching that, realizing what the whole humor of that show was about, you know, she's trimming the roses, but instead of trimming the rose as we would, she's cutting the tops of the roses off and, and set, you know, saving the thorn. The whole show, uh, my partner and I looked at each other and said, this is about entropy. This is about, it's a complete, the whole, all of the humor of it flips our typical norms of the way we look at it. It's all about, they're all about, you know, death, celebrate, and it's, um, and also there's this sort of sexiness in that show um, between them that was not really allowed in the other, you know, the shows of that time between husbands and wives, but yet there's, it was sort of permitted, I, I don't know, in the world of it, it's just, it's very, very funny. Um, it was uh, that we just stumbled upon that last night. It was like, this whole show is about entropy. And, and you know, acknowledging that in our life is not, um, I don't know, the, 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 the uh, overarching culture. <laughs> is not and I, and I mean in terms of the essay um permian paradox i think i knew i wouldn't get it published someplace um mainstream i would have loved to have that essay and it certainly i queried all of those places first the guardian npr mm -hmm. national geographic you know you name it um and i thought mm, they're gonna if they take this essay they will want um they will want some kind of um, call to action at the end. They would ask me to revise it with some paragraph about renewable energy or something, you know, and they will. And so I, I was satisfied with, I thought I will find a smaller, respectable, more literary outlet who will just take it as it is without yes. some kind of um, ending on it that I don't really want to tack on. <laughs> and, well, Connie you know, and I love the ending exactly as it is, and so we're grateful yeah. that you didn't you, mm -hmm. you didn't have it published. And have to out. add a happy chapter. <laughs> so many people who talk about collapse or contraction or you know the the inevitable devastation that we've been you know wreaking and that sort of thing, you know, feel compelled uh, for one way or another, either internally or externally, to add a happy chapter at the end. You know, if we all just do this, then you know, and so I. I deeply appreciate authors, artists, you know, movie makers that don't feel compelled uh, to add a happy chapter. That's one of right. the reasons why I consider mm -hmm. William Catton's book, Overshoot, that was written in 1980, to be the most important book I've ever read because he doesn't have a happy chapter. You know, you know me too. That's interesting you say that. I, when people ask me, uh, you know, what are, what are your, the most important books you've ever read? I consistently come back to that one because it, so blew my mind um, when I uh, read it, you know, came upon it a few years ago. Um, 
probably well, so, well, okay so, so say say more about that so so how did you how did you learn about Catton's overshoot tell me about it because it really is central to connie's in my life yes and um, to a number of a number of people in this series who also feel well, similarly yeah i think um i've never taken an ecology class per se i mean i've read um you know, read some nonfiction and, uh, you know, taken some biology classes and things like that, but I hadn't, uh, I haven't ever really taken an ecology class. Um, but, you know, when I started entering these conversations online about um, the predicament that we are in, um, you come across numerous books um, and there are certain blogs too, which I found to be really excellent in my understanding of, um, really peak oil and resources and environment. And, uh, and again, I really came in, I tried to come into, uh, you know, my questions completely unbiased. I wasn't, look, I had no idea what, you know, I, peak oil was another term. I thought, what's that? Like, you know, it's never really, it's not something a common person knows about or thinks about. I had never thought about energy in my life. I remember that term kind of coming up a lot in the mid 2000s and, um, and then it seemed to go away or, um, so I set about researching both of these things and realized that, you know, many in the peak resource camp sort of, uh, you know, they don't want to believe they, in the environmental impacts as much, you know, they want to believe that that's not going to be as bad as it is. And then conversely, the climate change, you know, that camp, uh, you know, all about the environment, but not really wanting to believe that, you know, Still wanting to believe that an industrial renewable civilization could keep us going <laughs> so, and, but i wasn't vested in either camp so you know realizing when you put the whole picture together is like oh it's all happening um but then finding i wanted to do deeper reading as well so i went from reading blogs such as um gail Sperberg's excellent blog our finite world um tim yep, yep. uh tim watkins blog blog tim uh, watkins, consciousness of yes the consciousness yep. of sheep he's uh so clear in his explanations um as i find uh gail to be but um he's so clear and he's just he's a really eloquent writer as well. I mean, his essay. Oh, he really is. He really yeah, is. He really is. So, and I mean, I've interviewed both of them. I've uh, interviewed okay. both of them as part of a series. Yeah. So, but I went from reading those blogs to, you know, then certain books come up that um, Joseph Tainter's Collapse of Complex Societies, I read that. And the Catton book was, uh, you know, the overshoot was um, one of those two. And, you know, these, these books are, I mean, for me, they were, um, I read them as much as you, you know, as as voraciously as another reader would turn the pages of a sultry romance. I mean, that's what a. That's or, or, what a or, or, or another way, another way of <laughs> saying that is my copy of Catton's Overshoot, because I've not only read it, uh, but I've recorded it um, unofficially with the, with the publisher's permission. And what's nice about recording the unofficial audiobook of something is that when I moved to Tears by Catton's Generosity of Soul. You can hear it. I keep the mic on. You can hear me sobbing, and you hear Connie sobbing on the yeah. on the couch listening to me. And and after all the great paragraph, probably two or three dozen times throughout the book, I say, "Now that paragraph was so good, I'm going to read it again." And so it alerts the audio listener, "Hey, wake up out of your trance. Uh, this is this is an important paragraph." And my cap copy of Catton's Overshoot is marked up 
like I, like I, when I was a fundamentalist Christian, like I marked up my, my Bible. I mean, it was underlined everything. You know, I mean, it's, it is like scripture for me. <laughs> well, it, it, again, it's another book that lays things out so clearly about, you know, and, and he doesn't cave in, even though, um, you know, this, how can it not be emotional when, I mean, this is your species you're talking about <laughs> or the others talking about that, that, um, you know, this is as sobering as it gets uh, to realize, well, we are subject to the same laws and, you know, laws of physics, natural law, as all of our fellow uh, mammals. And, um, and really, why shouldn't that be? But we take it personally. <laughs> you know? um, but uh, the, the book is just, uh, it was, and it was even, it even struck me, um, even more viscerally, I suppose, because I just read it a few years ago. And when was it published? Perhaps in 82 or eight? 19, I mean, 1980 was when it was published in hardback in 1982. It's often. Yeah. So he speaks here and there um, to, you know, the, there are some time markers in there about, you know, when he, you know, about uh, the point where we were then and in the way he talks about where we will be in. 40 years or so and realizing you know it's it's extremely sobering to realize well we are right on we are right we on are. point <laughs> and, and okay. as with um the you know the club of rome study the limits to growth uh trajectory as well so here we are the facts are what they are for those who can you know dare to stomach to uh acknowledge them and you know accept them um so yeah, I mean his his book is really uh, I feel like those um, those books together again for some people they may be kind of dry and academic but um, it kind of depends I think on the type of reader you are or um, you know, yeah I mean Tainter's yeah. book is a little more dry and academic than Catton's Overshoot in my experience yeah. Um, uh, but but in any rate, yeah I, for anybody watching or listening to this conversation. Um, if you just go to postdoom.com, which is where all of the interviews in this series exist, and just click on the resources page, right underneath my first two videos, which is on postdoom thinking and living, you'll see that uh, my SoundCloud playlists, and I have a William Catton SoundCloud playlist, and many other uh, <laughs> saints, as it were, you know, older brothers and sisters, mentors on the path. But I've, I've a huge piece of my own legacy work has been furthering the legacy of those who I see as the most important contributors uh, in the uh, uh, 20th and early 21st century. And so I've recorded like a thousand hours and it's all freely available uh, up on SoundCloud. So if you just put my SoundCloud Michael Dowd or SoundCloud Grace Limits is the, the title of my thing, you'll find all my playlists and I, I encourage you to check that out. Wow. Well, Vanessa, anything that you would like to say to sort of bring this conversation to completion for yourself? Anything? I, I had sent you the list of the questions that I, I had been inviting others to, to ask. Anything that you'd really like to address that we haven't covered yet? You know, I've thought a lot lately about um, quality of life. And, you know, as we continue to, you know, here we are, and we're still putting one foot in front of the other. <laughs> you know, um, I think we're all at a point in time where it's useful. I mean, completely including myself in this, um, in, in, to question, you know, how much information we're taking in, um, what, 
how much do we, because I don't believe our brains are equipped to deal with the flood of what is out there in the media, especially. If anything, we should probably be doing more deeper reading um, on any kind and of- news, And news fasting, perhaps yeah. news fasting, you know, right? <laughs> news fasting, which, uh, yeah, but, you know, how, how uh, realizing how things are probably going to go that, you know, I've had the tendency um, in the past to think, you know, really vividly and catastrophically about things. And I think that's also part of um, our Hollywood, I call it the Hollywood effect of, you know, we see things like, uh, you know, disaster movies and imagine that we will be in that when, you know, often our life and perhaps our own unraveling will be a lot more um, mundane. <laughs> it could, I could, might be a lot more mundane. It, it very well could involve, you know, moving back in with um, family or neighbors or, you know, um, things like that, having to do, you know, caregiving. Um, I'm in, we, my partner and I just moved back in. We had already planned this um, in the previous couple of years um, to move on to his mother's property. She's 92. So um, realizing that a lot of how we might be of service to people, you know, when you ask people, well, um, you know, what do we feel like we can do um, or what that we should do uh, that is meaningful, a lot of it might be very close to home. And um, that even just being there, um, for caring for our family members um, and neighbors, doing what we can. Um, I'm not really active, that active locally in environmental issues. I do have some friends though who are and who definitely after um, the 2016 election decided to really become active mm -hmm. locally. Um, so for some people that is uh, their path. Um, but you know, it's, it's, not a small thing to um, to just be very present for the people in your life as they go through this. And I'm thinking about this a lot because I'm going to be teaching again this fall. And I've been thinking about young people and my partner says I dwell on this. I, I fret about this a little too much about, you know, the students and what they need from me. And, you know, you don't get paid very much when you're teaching an adjunct class. <laughs> It's almost like a stipend. But I mean, for me, it's really important, though, because I mean, it's um, just thinking about where these young people are. My goodness, I know how I feel in these times. I'm 40 years old. They're 20 years old. And trying to figure out um, what, how I might meet them where they are. Um, and I'm teaching creative writing, but you know, uh, how, how I can uh, just make the class fun and meaningful and bring some relief to their yes. lives and not add more stress. Exactly. And, you know, maybe that's enough this fall. <laughs> you know, that's between, you know, caring for our family duties or our, our family responsibilities and taking that on. And that's okay. You know, we don't have to take up some Joan of Arc cross and... You know, that's not necessarily what's asked of us. <laughs> yes, and, 
Amen. Well, you know, it's interesting because much of my work over the last 18 years has been speaking in secular and religious contexts, you know, uh, uh, basically where science, inspiration and sustainability intersect. That's our, you know, our passion. Um, and yet now, because we're in a coronavirus era that most moderate to liberal Christian and Unitarian Universalist and other religious settings and secular groups aren't meeting in person a whole lot. Uh, I can do most of what I do uh, via Zoom, Zoom homilies, Zoom sermons, Zoom follow-up programs, Q&A sessions, like I'm having one tonight. Um, and, um, and it's interesting because my youngest daughter, who's 30, she just turned 30 a few days ago, uh, gave birth two months ago to my youngest granddaughter. I've got an almost 10-year-old granddaughter and now a two-month-old granddaughter. Oh, congratulations. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's it's like, you know, I went through my own transformation in terms of like, would I be okay with them getting pregnant when I learned that? Yeah. And fortunately, it, it shifted radically for me. And I was hugely grateful. Um, um, but my point, though, is that when I think about my life, and where can I make the biggest difference? Where can I contribute, given my gifts and given my limitations? we will quite possibly settle down in the Ypsilanti, Ann Arbor Ypsilanti area come, you know, a little less than a year from now because we've got places lined up. We're going to be at the, where Thomas Berry, one of my great mentors, is buried at the Green Mountain Monastery uh, in northern Vermont. We're scheduled to be there for almost five months as caretakers uh, over the winter. But then after that, we'll, we're quite possibly going to, you know, find a little cheap place to within walking distance of my daughter and son-in-law and and uh granddaughter uh and uh be of support to family uh and continue to do what i do via zoom and connie continues to do what she does um right she's one of the world's she's one of the main point people in assisting trees and migrating uh poleward uh to, you know the Mm -hmm. uh, a, a major book just came out called The Journeys of Trees by Zach St. George that features her from throughout the whole book. So we can do that based in a place where we can be of service uh, to family. So that's right. That's oh, fantastic. Right. Well, I think we're going to increasingly find ourselves doing more of that and, and um, family and neighbor units, you know, are Absolutely. Going, working together. And that, and again, um, we have to keep in mind that there can be some really great outcomes that that uh, come out of this as our lives continue to progress. Um, I mean, or I think as our lives continue to simplify, because I, I'm, simplify. Not, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not crazy about the word progress. Pro progress is not the word to be to be as our as our lives. Uh, meander along i don't know <laughs> they might be meandering a little bit more i like john michael greer's admonition to that, that, that it would be good for us for our souls and our world to adapt to less l-e-s-s -S, less energy less stuff less stimulation we will, we will be whether we uh like it or not and and and, and it's a great reminder too because i went through this too when my sister had a baby in the last year or two wondering how I would feel about it. And I actually love, I mean, I love my nephew. And, and I think we do have to, to, a continuing lesson for us as individuals and as a society is going to be thinking about quality of life and, and uh, what quality of life means regardless of quantity uh, of years and really adjusting our um, perceptions, our views of that. <laughs> so yeah mm -hmm. Amen. wow well thank you so much vanessa this has been a, a real treat for me 
and um, just blessings on your writing, blessings on this, this uh, uh, you know, adjunct course that you'll be doing. And um, I'll, uh, as soon as this is edited, uh, I'll, uh, I'll send you the link. Hello, thank you. Likewise, this is wonderful talking to you. So look forward to sometime doing it again. Thank you. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.